0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 through 52. This is the word of God to us. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many."
1: Thanks, Corey. And good morning, everyone. We made it. An hour more of sleep. Some of you wanted to come to the nine, you missed it. but we're glad that you're here. You're welcome. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Dylan, I'm our pastor for community and mission here. And uh, thus far in the series, we've worked our way through a whole lot of Mark, and we're in a really exciting part where we're going to see his final Jesus' final um, healing miracle. And at, after this, we're into Holy Week. So I'm going to pray for you. You please pray for me, and we'll dive in. Father, uh, we're so grateful to get to be here in your house with your people, and we're grateful to get to open your word. But we do ask, uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand it? Would you open our eyes to it? Would you open our hearts to it? Would you show us your way here? And, And Jesus, I just ask that all of us would leave transformed because of your power. In Jesus' name, amen. I made a pretty dumb mistake when I was 16. Um, I just gotten my driver's license. Shout out to when teenagers cared about their driver's license. Um, anyway, me and, a, me and a buddy, we were interested in some girls. And uh, growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, we listened to music and what it told us was that uh, the way to impress girls was two things, cars and money, all right? And uh, we didn't have much money, but we did have a car. And so we decided that we were going to pick them up and speed around town and really try to impress them. All right, to make a short story short, um, it didn't last long. It was was impressive for a really short period of time before I was pulled over, thrown in the back of a cop car, left to question everything I'd ever known, right? I literally was given thousands of dollars worth of tickets. And, um, you know, I was, I was just doing what the world taught me to do, to be honest. It was what I had heard, and it's what I believed, and it didn't work out for me. Um, but what ultimately happened was my decisions endangered people's lives. And uh, they gave me over $1,000 worth of tickets, and it left me in a dark and lonely place. I was using uh, the only thing I really had at my disposal to feel something right, to feel great or powerful or special. And I had bought some lie along the way that that's how my value was defined. But it wasn't true and it wasn't impressive, at least not for long. So today we're going to consider that that way that the world views greatness. We're going to think about that And then we're gonna see Jesus' view of greatness and see how it's completely different, okay? Here in a second, we're gonna jump into the story, but you need to remember that this passage, it comes right on the heels of Jesus saying that we must enter the kingdom like a child. We must come to him like a child. And then there's this rich young man who walks away from Jesus. And then Jesus predicts his death and crucifixion again. So let's jump in. Verse 35, read along with me. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand, or at my left, is not mine to grant. It is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. This is a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird passage here. James and John's first question should raise red flags for us, right? If someone comes up to you on the street and says, hey, I want you to do whatever I ask of you, you should just run the other way. But Jesus, he entertains it, all right? This, he, the son of God, he answers this surprisingly humbly. It's, it's, it's humble, it's disarming, it's almost confusing. He, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Well, Jesus, when you come into your glory, we wanna be next to you. We want the prominent seats to be at your right hand and you're left. It's, a, it's an arrogant claim, and, and what I think we first need to see is that even these faithful disciples of Jesus, they've been following him for years, they come to Jesus as a means to an end. They come to Jesus with worldly mixed motives. Now, here's what's fascinating. Jesus, I think, really politely just explains to them that they don't know what they're talking about. He asks if they can drink the cup that he drinks or endure the baptism that he will endure, and they say, yeah, we can, right? The arrogance that we see time and time again from the sons of thunder here. And of course, just before this, Jesus has predicted the way that he would be condemned, killed, and rise from the dead. And so when he speaks about this baptism, he's talking about the chaos and the calamity that he's about to endure as he walks to the cross. And when he talks about the cup, He's talking about the cup of judgment of God, that he willingly will drink on behalf of other sins in death, in his death. Now, Jesus explains that one day they will experience what he's going to experience, but differently. And history holds that James was martyred for his faith and that John died in solitary confinement. But Jesus explains that God has long ago decided who would be in those positions at his right and his left. You see, Jesus has this way where he trusts God with those places. Now, it's obvious to assume that James and John are talking about a future glory, all right, not a present suffering. But it's worth noting that the people at the right and left of Jesus, as he's lifted up on the cross in glory... They're not his disciples. You see that cup that Jesus drank in that moment? It was drank with the people next to him are criminals on his right and his left. And if you know that story, one of the men on the sides of Jesus is saved in that moment. Aren't you so glad that Jesus trusted God with that? Now one of the surprising things here is that Jesus, uh, he's just finished talking about this really tragic and painful road ahead of him. It's really hard, and, and the two people who are closest to him completely miss it. They completely take it for granted. These are people who have walked with Jesus, had meals with Jesus, slept under the stars with Jesus, and as they see this wild ride coming to an end, rather than being concerned about their friend who's in danger, they only think about themselves. James and John's blind, worldly ambition causes them to miss the beauty of the human being right in front of them. And that is what dangerous worldly ambition will do. If we're so concerned with ourselves, we may miss the image bearers of God right in front of us. Then Jesus, with a single honest question, what do you want me to do for you? He lays the selfishness of their hearts there. The selfishness comes to the surface. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you're just totally totally naked in front of someone, not physically, I mean, maybe, well, anyway, Um, but where the true motives of your heart are laid bare, like the things that you never wanted anyone to know, you never wanted anyone to see. I have. It's a painful moment. It's a really humbling moment because we've convinced ourselves for a long time that we've been doing things for the right reasons, but the reality is that we all have mixed motives. I bet this was a painful moment for them, one that they'd never forget. And the interesting thing about John is that he lived on to write, and we have what he had to say. And so I want to show you uh, what John had to say as a much older man years later in 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 8. John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't this just sound like a changed man? No longer the son of thunder, no longer filled with worldly, unhealthy ambition, but humbled. You see, in this moment, Jesus, he doesn't use this moment to shame them, but he receives their honesty and uses this moment to teach them. He graciously allowed these sinful, selfish desires of James and John's hearts to be displayed because he loved them. He loved them too much to let them remain deceived. And by exposing that sin in them, Jesus begins the faithful work to forgive them and to cleanse them and to transform them. Now, church, here's why I think this matters for us, all right? The question that Jesus poses to James and John today is the same question that we want to hear for ourselves today. He asks you, what do you want me to do for you? No matter how long you've been following Jesus, if we're honest, we all know that there are ways in which we are following him with mixed motives. Let's not deceive ourselves, like, like John says, and say that sin is not in us. There are ways in which our insecurities, our fears, woundings, desires, they all cause us to treat Jesus like he's a means to an end. And like these disciples, we're all prone to use Jesus to get what we want. For me, I wrestle back and forth with this in ministry all the time. I see my peers um, who, some of them, are doing lots of self-promotion and getting honored for it. And for me, I'm not saying it's all wrong, but for me, there's something in my conscience that, where I just can't necessarily let myself do that. But the reality is that when I, I see them get recognition and notoriety for that for it, I'm actually really jealous. Well, why? Because I come to Jesus with mixed motives. How about you? How would you honestly answer the question of Jesus, What do you want me to do for you? Think about it. Do you hope that people know your name? Do you hope that Jesus gets you the spouse that you've always dreamed of, or that He helps your kids stay on the straight and narrow? Or if you obey Him, that He'll bless you financially? Here's a question: um, What is one thing that you think that you could not possibly live without? At one point, I told God, "I'll do anything for you. I just want to travel the world right, the ideal millennial missionary dream. And um, Jesus, he was so gentle, and he gently reminded me that one day there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and so instead of using him to get what I want, I can just trust him and trust that he's good. And here's what I want you to see. So much of this comes down to an issue of trust. It comes down to an issue of faith. God, are you enough for me if I don't realize my dreams? Are you enough for me if my kids don't stack up or if I don't have what I want or I think that I need? Do we trust him? When we lack faith, we live by fear and we seek to control and position and posture like these disciples do to secure our place in the world. So I want to give this to you. Pay attention to your fear. Pay attention to where you get angry because that is often where our faith is the weakest. And just like Jesus met these disciples, I think that is exactly where Jesus wants to meet us, in the weakness of our faith and in our place of fear. And so the invitation for you today is to hear the question of Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? And to be honest and to trust him with your desire, and I think what you'll see is that Jesus is gracious enough to receive our answers and to help us acknowledge these gaps of faith, and then to use that to cleanse us and show us a better way, all right? Let's look back at the text and see how gentle Jesus is with their honesty and how he corrects them. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, Jesus, he really just points out that the way that the the world views greatness Is not the way. He says, Those who are considered rulers, you know the great ones? You can hear the sarcasm in his voice. They exercise authority over them, they subject them, tax them, beat them, force them to submit. You see, Jesus is inviting them with open eyes and the wisdom of God to honestly examine their understanding of greatness. Is that really greatness? Worldly greatness is about how many people serve you. It's about how many people want to be you. Worldly greatness is about the ways that power, influence, wealth, comfort, security, how will those benefit you and afford you those benefits in your life? This is something we're all prone to believe. Did you know that a study done by a research group connected with Lego, the toy brand, uh, found that one in three middle school age kids wants to be a social media influencer. I generally don't trust Legos. They're always in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it's eye-opening. And we could say that this is just the kids, but the kids are always a reflection of us. Somehow, in the deep, uh, you know, the deep parts of our heart, we teach them that wealth and power and influence is what it's all about. I recently did something that I don't often do. I post it on social media. Um, really though, I, I don't know that I'm mature enough for it. Um, it, really, it really messed with me. I was so concerned with what everybody thought. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that happens to you, but that's not so much a comment about social media as it is about where I find my value, all right? And that's a question. Where do you find your value? Let me tell you how I really feel about this. I'm so tired of watching people that I love be consumed by their desire for status, wealth, comfort, and a beautiful life. I'm tired of it. It's fake, and it's consuming people that I love. The worldly way of greatness tempts us to become 2D plastic commoditized versions of ourselves, comparing ourselves to others and cashing out everything that we are to buy the world's lies about greatness. Running the race of worldly greatness leaves us tired and anxious at an empty, false finish line, unsatisfied. Have you ever felt that? It's a moment, church, where I want to invite all of us to examine who are we listening to for you. Who defines greatness? I didn't finish my story from the introduction. Um, I had over a thousand dollars worth of tickets and it was time for me to go to court, which meant that I needed an attorney. And um, I didn't really have the money to pay the tickets and I sure didn't have an attorney. I didn't make it a habit of needing one, but uh, word spread pretty fast to my youth pastor, who called me into his office. And rather than scolding me, he informed me that there was an attorney on staff at our church, and he wanted to defend me for free. I thought it was kind of weird that there was an attorney on staff for the church; it seemed fishy. <laughs> but when I when I came in, um, he He showed me the man that he was talking about. It was a man that I knew, a very godly man. It was our church janitor. You see, um, this man, he had previously been an attorney, um, but when he decided that he was going to follow Jesus, the way that he chose to do that was to put himself in front of as many people who needed Jesus as possible, and that was his choice just to be a church janitor. And I want to say he did so much more than just clean. He gave his life for the kids in the youth group, and we were never the same. He, he, didn't, he didn't just clean up after us, but he defended countless people in our church and outside of our church who needed him. You see, this isn't, about, this isn't about laying down your prominent job to become a janitor, although I think that's beautiful, and I think that if God calls you to do that, you should do it. What this is about is this is about a man who took everything, every single thing that God gave him and didn't use it to serve himself, but he used it to serve others. And that is a living illustration of Christ's greatness. Jesus says that um, this selfish, consuming greatness is not the way for us, but whoever would be first among you must be the servant of all. Now why? Why? For Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the spotless lamb, this one man who deserves to be served above all else. For he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom, a price paid to buy someone's freedom. Jesus became the ransom to free us free from sin and death, free from controlling fear and blind ambition, free from ourselves. The way of Jesus sets us free. James and John, concerned with themselves, thought that Christ's life, death, and resurrection was all about themselves and their own desires. And I want you to see that slavery to self will cause us to miss the gospel. But that's not the gospel. Jesus freed us so that we could serve others jesus he didn't free you so you could live your best life now but he became your ransom so that you could be a servant just like him now uh, we're going to look at the last portion of our text and i want you to see that jesus doesn't just teach us this but he models it for us look at verse 46 and they came to jericho that's an important detail And so they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. This is one of my favorite stories from the Bible. You see, Bartimaeus, he's blind. He's lived his entire life in darkness, and every day he needs help to get to the roadside just so he can make it another day. He owns one thing, a cloak. And when he gets to his spot, he lays it down so that people passing by can throw coins into it. And at the end of the day, he gathers up his cloak and all of the coins from that day. And he goes home, wherever home is. And I imagine he had many dark and hopeless days. But this man, this blind beggar, was a man of hope. He was a man of faith. At some point, he heard of this miracle worker. He heard of a man who claimed to fulfill the prophecy from the book of Isaiah that the blind would recover their sight. Some people believe this man to be the Messiah, who is supposedly a descendant of, the King, of King David of old. And this blind man, he may have heard a very popular parable from this rabbi, a parable where a good Samaritan man cares for a man beaten along a specific road, that road between Jerusalem and Jericho, his home. So this blind man places himself as close to that road as possible, potentially for days, for weeks, for months, and then he waits. And one day, out of the darkness, he hears that he is coming. This miracle-working Messiah is coming. And in the moment... As he hears the footsteps of Jesus, all of the hope and faith inside of him pent up for his entire life explodes through his vocal cords as he screams out in faith, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds believing, just like worldly greatness would tell them, that Jesus is a great Messiah on a great mission and he doesn't have time for you. They try to shush him. But he calls out again, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. And Jesus, the greatest man to ever live, calls this blind beggar to him. And unlike the rich man that we discussed last week, who wouldn't part with his possessions, this man, this blind beggar, leaves everything he has behind as he casts off his cloak. And he runs to Jesus like a little child. And this Jesus, this greatest man to ever live, says what only a servant would say, the same thing he said to James and John, What do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And then Jesus says, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And as Bartimaeus opens his eyes, what's the first thing that he sees? The beautiful, compassionate face of Jesus. Jesus doesn't even ask anything from him, he says, Go your way. And and Jesus models this true greatness as he makes himself a servant of the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, and he is changed forever. Listen to this. Most of the time, we don't know the names of people in stories when they're healed. We don't know their names. But we know the name of Bartimaeus. And that's because in this final healing story of Jesus, this man, he does not go his own way. He goes the way of Jesus. Most experts agree That we know his name, because he followed Jesus to Jerusalem, to his death, to Jesus' death, and then he became a vital part of the church. Bartimaeus was a beggar, trapped in his physical blindness. But I also want you to see that James and John were beggars too. They were blinded and trapped inside themselves. But Jesus, taking the lowly place of a servant, became the ransom to free those blind beggars and help them see the way of true greatness, the way of Jesus, that it is a path of a servant. So church, can we be honest? We too are blind beggars, freed by Jesus, not so that we may serve our own interests any longer, but that we may, like him, become a servant to all. Notice that servant, it's not a verb, all right? It's not something that Jesus calls us to do once a month. And I'm all about serving. I'm all about helping out with different initiatives in our city, and that's important. But, but servant is a noun. It's, a, it's an identity that we are called to have and to take on just like Jesus. This is a gospel identity issue. Now, Um, I wanna talk a little practically about what this looks like. Um, Jesus gives us a good model here for what it means to be a servant. He is going about his task for the day and the opportunity arises because Jesus is interruptible. The greatest man in the world on the greatest mission of all time is interruptible. Are you? It's really convicting to me. Sometimes I pack my schedule and I'm so overcommitted that I cannot be present for anyone who has needs of me. So I want to ask you this question Where are you feeling the invitation from Jesus to this true greatness of being a servant? All right, I want to talk about this in, in two quick ways. There are really extraordinary ways to do this, and we'll talk about that in a second, but there are also really extraordinary ways that are truly ordinary. Like, for example, um, when Jesus stops and says, What do you want me to do for, for, for you? It makes me think about whether or not I'm even patient enough with my own children to do that, right? That's an extraordinary way to be a servant, is to be a parent. Um, there are the the ways of we are called to love and serve your spouse in ways where you lay down your life for them. Maybe in massive ways. Maybe in ways that you get written up in a news article about, but more than likely in very ordinary ways, right? Jesus is a servant in ordinary ways. I'm thinking about if, for many of us that just work very ordinary jobs, working your job in a way that glorifies God as you serve in that role, all right? There are, there are powerful ordinary ways to be a servant, now, I also want to talk about some extraordinary ways. And I'm, I'm going to share some stories here in a second. And I don't share them because I think that we're unique or, or that our church is really special. I think that our church has a lot of ways to grow. I can tell you most of them. But I want them to stir your faith. And I want it to push us further as we accept Jesus's identity of servant. All right? There are teachers in our church right now who are currently letting homeless students of theirs live in their homes with them, with their families. There are people in our church that every single week buy groceries for people who are less fortunate. There are people, there are families in our, in our church that have filled up the empty rooms in their house with foster children. There are people in our church who have furnished homes for single moms. There are some that write hand encouraging, that handwrite encouraging notes to nurses every single month and deliver them to hospitals. There are a few people in our church who visit the elderly in nursing homes. People still do that, by the way. We should do that. I know of um, businesswomen and businessmen in our church who are brilliant, and they are levering, leveraging every single ounce of profit and genius that they have to give other people's other people's jobs, and mentor them. There are lots of people in this church right now that don't just attend church for their own needs, but they attend church so that they make it their mission here that every single kid would hear the good news of Jesus, or that as people walk through the doors, every single person will receive a smile, and that this place is hospitable for anyone to hear the good news of Jesus. We have empty nesters in our church joining community groups full of young people because they want to mentor them. I love that. And um, There are community groups in our church that host regular meals for the homeless. They serve them and then they sit down and they eat with them and they even throw, uh, they throw parties for them when they get job interviews. I think that's beautiful. Now, um, some of you Maybe your wheels are spinning. Maybe if you're a contractor or maybe you have skills with financial management or maintenance, and you may be feeling drawn to offer those who have need. Um, if you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you feel called to widen the net of people that you invite to your kids' playdates to include those who you think may be on the outside. Or maybe you're a young single person and it's time for you to coach a kid's sports team. That way they have mentors. But this is a question I want all of us to ask today. Where are you feeling the invitation of Jesus to the true greatness of being a servant? Church, may, may we be a people who have been ransomed from ourselves, freed to follow Jesus and like him to be servants of all. And I believe this. I believe that if we do that, if we follow him, lives will be changed. I believe that our lives will be changed, but the lives of many people in our families, in our communities, in our city will never be the same. So, for all in the room today, whether you've been following Jesus for years or you don't follow him now, can you see that apart from Jesus, we're all just blind beggars? And I want you to hear the humble man, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, ask you the question, what do you want me to do for you? And may we all, like our brother Bartimaeus, have the right answer of Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I want you to see that you're not too far from him. This Jesus, this man, this God, he hears the cries of the lowly, he calls them to him, he looks them in the eyes, and he heals them. He hears you. And church, lastly, you have seen how those who are considered rulers live, but it shall not be so among You, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so humbled by the way that you've humbled yourself. You are the picture of true greatness and and you gave everything that you have to ransom us and to free us. And Jesus, I ask that through the power of your spirit that you would purify us of our own worldly desires. I ask that we would be a church that is so passionately ministered to by you, so filled by you that everything that we have and everything that we do would be used to benefit and bless others and for the glory of your name. Jesus, it's in your name we pray, amen.